Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. I create a model portfolio of Dave Portnoy's picks, another model portfolio of of Robinhood, you know, Robinhood's most popular, and then I'll show Warren Buffett's, you know, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway B class. And I will be able to, on a single chart, compare not 52 lines from uh, Dave Portnoy and and 15 lines from uh, Robinhood. I'll be able to aggregate Dave Portnoy's into one line and look at it like it's its own security. I can see its exposure to, to ETFs, stocks, and mutual funds. I can see its risk characteristics. I can see its geographic exposures. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Derivative. I'm your host, Jeff Malik, and excited to dive into the FinTech world a little bit today and talk with Sean Brown, the CEO slash head coach of YCharts. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So we're, we're typically talking with hedge fund managers and learning how they approach the market. So this is a little bit different in finding how one of the companies that helps those managers and investors came to be and what they offer. Um, and why charts for listeners, if you're not already on the bandwagon, is an investment research platform, provides quick access to investment data and charts, and helps users share those insights. Uh, and over the last 10 years, it's been since inception, Charts has grown to be one of the hottest fintech companies around. And yours truly uses it nearly every day to look up some piece of data or create a blog post. Um, so before we get into how cool Charts is, let's talk a little bit about you, Sean. Is that cool? Yeah, it's great. Awesome to have you as a user of Charts. That makes for a great discussion. I know. And I'll have to say, I'm. you guys make it almost a little too easy because the, the support the live chat is so great that I'm always, I never really learn anything. I just ask. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tell our team, our, our job is to make the complex easy and the easy quick. Um, always, always glad to hear we're doing our job. Yeah. The, those live chat folks are great. Um, so you're here in Chicago. You're up in the suburbs. I am. I'm in a suburb, uh, Lake Forest, about 30 miles North of Chicago. All right. Know it well. Played uh, on Wednesday a few times with some friends. You must, have some, you must have some uh, great friends. I've actually never played on Wednesday myself. Maybe it's because I'm a terrible golfer, um, but uh, it also could be that's a, that's a great course, and uh, I know it's tough to get on. Yeah, it's fun. Um, and I'm not all that great of a golfer myself, but uh, it's, it's fun. Glad that they're back open in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so you went to college, both Notre Dame and Stanford? I did. I went to undergrad at Notre Dame and grad school. At, I got my MBA at Stanford. All right. So who do you cheer for in the annual matchup? Uh, I, I think you can only have one first love in life, and uh, uh, I'll always be a diehard Notre Dame fan. Um, but, you know, if, if Notre Dame's not playing, I, uh, I certainly will be rooting for Stanford. 
I like it. Who you think they're going to be back this year? Have a have a season. I do. It'll be interesting to see what that shape takes. Um, I know as a, as a regular uh, attendee to Notre Dame Stadium, um, they don't have it figured out yet. So I have a feeling stadiums are going to be about, you know, a quarter capacity and people sitting uh, every other row kind of thing. Um, so I'm interested, interested to see how that affects the play on the field when you're, you're not getting the loud stadium noises and the excitement of uh, seeing all your classmates in the stands yeah and i just so who is it the oakland a's are selling their fans you can buy a cardboard cutout of yourself you send in a picture and they'll put a, <laughs> a cardboard cutout in the in the stands of you that's brilliant i was i was watching over the deep part of the pandemic when the korean baseball leagues the south korean baseball leagues were going and just seeing how they were filling stands with digital emojis you know behind home plate and stuff so we'll have to get a little creative here yeah, those guys are good. And then I think of the football season, like anytime you've been Notre Dame, Bears game, like the men's rooms are just, right? That's a pure breeding ground for a virus. Like you're packed in there, you're breathing hard. It's yeah. cold. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that. The world um, has changed. Let's see how it impacts sports. Yeah, that's a whole other topic. Uh, so also a bit of a uh, chef or a home chef. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. I love cooking. Uh, cooking's my therapy. Um, grew up, my mom's all Italian, and um, that was some joy she was able to pass on to me. I just love the feeling of having the family sitting around the island in the kitchen, open up a bottle of red wine, and um, I, I'm not the follow the recipe kind of guy. I'm the uh, creative, what do we have in the refrigerator, and how might it come together, and so sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I don't get it right, but I love the creative process of cooking. That's my wife's uh, disclaimer at the start of every dinner party. Like, if we screwed up, we can always order a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's the same. And I've had to do that on, on a couple occasions. And what are you, you're hitting Italian, pasta dishes, um, everything? You know what I really, really enjoy? I, I love to just take the basics and try to do them better. I love to take the recipe for grilled cheese and make it the best grilled cheese. I love to um, sous vide a, a nice steak and get an incredible flavor over out of a steak I've had a thousand times in my life. So uh, I do do a lot of Italian, but otherwise it's literally um, what did I see on the, uh, at the grocery store shelf that looked appealing and how could I put it together with some things in my fridge that may be uh, soon to expire and see how it works out. And you know how to what? and how to pronounce sous vide. So you're ahead of me by far. What is that? <laughs> so sous vide is where you, um, you basically cook a steak to the exact temperature you want it by it's basically in a um, vacuum sealed bag and in a pot oh, that yeah, it's yeah. boiled at a specific temperature and then you just put it on the grill to sear it. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so there's no guesswork on the on the no guesswork. You, you, yeah. you say you want something medium, medium rare, or you say you want something slightly north of rare. You pick the temperature; it comes out exact. You just sear it at the end to make it look like you're used to a steak looking, and it's fantastic. All right, I'm gonna try that out. I've been doing for the kids these uh, crazy French toast experiments, like jelly donut French toast, s'mores French toast. Fruity Pebbles French toast. Yeah, I think you have kids around my kids' age. I think you mentioned you have at least an 11-year-old, right? Yeah, 11 and 8. Okay, so I have a 12 and a 13-year-old, and that's how my 
cooking uh, approach has changed is I don't like to cook just for myself or my wife. I like to cook for the whole family and my kids seem to have the, you know, uh, picky taste buds. So I've simplified things and gotten to great grilled cheese, great, you know, uh, great pizzas, um, you know, great steaks, great burgers, great hot dogs, and uh, just trying to do them a little bit better than, uh, than I've had them before. All right, I'm I'm inviting myself over for one of those world's best grilled cheeses. That sounds good. As long as you stay about six feet apart, you're welcome. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, give us a little background on what you were doing before uh, getting into wide charts. So, immediately before I was leading a division of interactive data called Wide Charts, uh, excuse me, called Seven Ticks. Um, Seven Ticks was a low latency trading network. Uh, used for uh, you know very quick trading by hedge funds, prop shops, uh, and and others. Uh, I was leading a division. We sold to uh, ICE, the owners of the New York Stock Exchange, for a little bit over five billion. And I told my wife it's time to take some extended time off and um, do some things we have postponed in life, and had every intention of doing that. And uh, then I ran into uh, the team. At, I got. I ran into two weeks later. Ran into the team at Y Charts, and uh, that was four years ago. Two weeks, and it's been just awesome since then. My wife's still a little pissed that I never took that uh, that time off. But you know, yeah, you're supposed to be doing this cooking in Italy after that. After that sale. Oh yeah, yeah. There were there. So we've tried to fit in, um, do a little bit better job of fitting in our dreams along the way maybe than we used to, but, um, you know, before seven ticks, I, I, I have a history that started as being a, a software developer progressed to being a strategy consultant. And then I became just a perpetual entrepreneur. Great. Seven ticks. So who the ice data team bought that? The, um, yeah. Yes. Yep. I can't remember exactly. the technical name of that, but yep. Ice data services. Yeah. 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 Yep. We do some work with them on our algo, uh, Algo team. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was a neat time, right? Um, I, low latency trading uh, got a, 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 appropriately got a bad name with um, some of the bad actors at uh, uh, Flash Boys and some yeah, things Michael profiled Lund, in books. Um, we, we simply had very, very fast pipes that we leased out and we managed network uptime and redundancy and, and, and all of those things. And uh, so it was a, a neat time where technology perfectly coincided with, um, you know, the advent of digital trading and, and things like that. And so a lot of fun. And what you always hear, like, it's a race to zero and right. Everyone's out trying to outspend each other, build a radar tower, mm -hmm. all this stuff. So were you benefiting from that or you were hurt by that kind of someone? No, that that, was the, the, that was the business we were in, right? If you're going right. to make that huge capital outlay, um, any single party, if Citadel is going to do it, that's a, an expensive capital outlay. Um, how about if one party does it and lease subleases out the capacity and the redundancy that you've put in place? And so that's what we did. We said, build once, let others uh, uh, lease out portions of that. And we were responsible for keeping it fresh, keeping up on all the new technologies so that the hedge funds and uh, prop shops didn't have to do that work themselves, which would have been too expensive. And you came very uh, fluent in microseconds. And what was the lowest latency you were dealing with? 
Uh, it was never enough. All, all I recall yeah. from, from that, it was never enough and there was never enough redundancy. And it was a 24 seven job when you're, you're saying you, you got to span the globe and everything's got to be up and running. And inevitably something happens in a trans Siberian pipe that, uh, means you're up in the middle of the night trying to figure out how to reroute things. So uh, I don't remember the exact latency, except uh, I still uh, I still remember being woken up in the middle of the night numerous times, finding out it either wasn't fast enough or it wasn't redundant enough. So they're literally like a internet cable running across Siberia in a pipe that go at, at the At the end of the day, it, it comes down to a pretty simple thing. It's like your home neighborhood, right? There, there's only so many access points to your home. Like there's only so many ways to get around the globe. And as much as you'd like to think there's unlimited redundancy you can put in place, there are certain pinch points where there's only one or two routes. And if anything happens to go bad there, you're in some trouble. Which is like from basically London and New York, there's the transatlantic undersea cables and that kind of stuff you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the microwave guys are, are figuring out new things and there's some, some additional ways. There's some satellite technology coming about. But yes, pr uh, predominantly there are a few routes to go across the various ponds and uh, you better have access to each of them. And that's a heavy capital outlay. Yeah. I, I wonder what percent of the internet using public like knows that there's literally cables on the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> yes. right? Bringing yeah. their data. It just seems so old fashioned that there's ships out there dropping a cable 3000 feet underwater. Yeah. I mean, we all see these diagrams of the internet and you know, all the nodes and th those are great when you're in a, a, a land mass that, you know, goes from city to city. But when you go across oceans, that's a, that's a different endeavor and yeah, it is what it is. And there are some critical pinch points. Yeah. And what was Facebook was going to do like glimpse over Africa and stuff. That's <laughs> yes. another yeah. crazy ideas. Um, yeah. So then got into wide charts four years ago mm -hmm. and they brought you in as the, the head coach. What did that look like? Um, wide charts is a 11 year old company. So I came in four years ago um, really to take a, a a company that was good and take it to great. And I'm not sure we've gotten to great yet. In fact, I'm, I'm sure we'll never be at great because I keep raising the bar and my team keeps raising the bar on what's great. But it was taking a business that was uh, really focused on multiple industries uh, and, and serving each of them pretty well to saying, let's get laser focused on a few industries and be great at that. And so give us the, uh, the, quick elevator pitch on who white charts is what they do so we are a SaaS based cloud um, service that's out there at whitecharts.com and we do two things one is we enable smarter investment decisions and that's through some great analytics and and some great data and some great customer support which I think you you've become aware of the other one is we help communications you know when you have the word charts in your name you better be pretty good at visuals. You better yeah. be pretty good at the at personifying the the expression. A picture's worth a thousand words. So we help you come to the right investment decisions, and we help you communicate those. And we do it through a pretty easy to use website. If you can use a, a browser, you can master our software. And again, um, I mentioned to you. You mentioned to me. Um, we believe human support is vital. As good as our application is, people want and need support, and we try to make that really easy for them to tap into. And that seems 
like totally opposite of what most firms are doing these days, right? Of going away from human support and put it in an FAQ, make a chat bot available, things like that. What was, what was that decision like to say? Well, I, I, I just think you got to know your market. Right. And, and if your market is a, a bunch of fully tech enabled millennials who don't want to talk to people and prefer completely digitized communications and are fine with bots, then then a business model to serve them. You know, it, it's pretty clear what that is. The market we serve predominantly is wealth advisors and asset managers. Um, typically speaking, those are groups that are north of 40 um, may not individually be the most tech savvy people or may not have the time to become tech savvy and they appreciate the comfort of knowing they can get some help. They not just in like, how do I do this? But Hey, I don't have a big team. Do you have anybody at Y charts who can do this for me? And we don't charge extra for, to create a, um, help you modify a sheet that links to our database, uh, an Excel sheet that links to our database to achieve whatever your business objective is. That's just the business we in. I, I guess I'd say um, that's what our market needs. That's what we provide. And it does run counter to the laws of SAS, which say, you know, don't, don't yeah. have people involved because that doesn't work well. It, it works great for us. Right, and but you don't see it as a drag on profitability, or it, it improves the customer experience. So you're going to get more customers out of it in the long run. Uh, it's a combination of we get more customers and and we rarely lose customers. So one of the yeah. one of the challenges when you're a subscription based service, whether you're Netflix or you're a software company like us or or Comcast, is um, how do you keep all the customers you currently have? And one of the one of the things with our secret sauce is. Um, very, very infrequent for a customer to leave us, which means as we look to grow and scale, we can count on very predictably, um, you know, high 90% of our revenue that we previously garnered sticks with us. And any new customers we bring on board, we bring on with the same sense of comfort that they're going to be with us for a long, long, long time. And I'm talking, you know, five to seven years is kind of our average. And so I view it as kind of a, a cheaper, or cheaper is the wrong word, less expensive, um, an online version of Bloomberg. Would you say that's fair comparison? That's, that's one comparison. You know, if, if, if you were a, a breakaway wealth advisor and you were used to working at the wirehouse or the broker dealer you were at and you had access to a Bloomberg terminal for twenty to 25000 a year, you may not have that budget when you break away. So we think we, we've probably got 80 to 90% of the functionality, but 100% of the functionality they need at a fifth of the price. So we'll either, we can either be a, 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 a more mobile, um, easier to use and, and easier to learn and um, more inexpensive version of a high-end product or if you're coming from using free services, Yahoo Finance, Google Finance, Coifin Charts, or something like that, um, we're at a price point where we're not too far out of your free budget. So for those that are power users of those services but see some weaknesses, um, they can become our customers too. And so talk about Coifin for a minute. I think they're kind of a darling of FinTwit, of all the Twitter people I follow on, you know, uh, and that you think that's just because it is free, free tool and they can easily build their charts. 
Well, first of all, I, I have nothing but respect for Bloomberg's and Koifins and, and, and others in our space. So I'll, I'll be careful not to say anything that would sound anything yeah, like yeah. disparaging. But um, I think when a, when a business model, um, uh, revenue is an important part of any business that I've been part of. And free services, there's only a couple ways to make money off of a free service. It's what do you do with the data you're collecting? And do you serve up ads? Um, because you can't, you know, they call it a charity if you don't collect, um, yeah. if you, if you don't collect revenue, uh, through time. So I think, uh, there are companies out there that are going to need to figure out how over the long run, will they make money in the meantime, there's numerous niches that can be, uh, exploited in the space, a free, better version of Yahoo finance or Google finance is certainly a space that a company like Coifin is exploiting. And what, why doesn't Google like just come in here and dominate this space? You'd think, I've always thought it'd be great if you could just type in any symbol, right, a future symbol in the search bar of Google and you could automatically have the data right there on the screen. Any, yeah. any thoughts on why they stay away? Or? Yeah, for, well, first of all, you know, if Amazon or Google wanted to attack any space, believe me, I, I don't have yeah. a, a big enough competitive moat to say, They'd never be able to. So hopefully nobody from Google or Amazon is listening to your podcast right now. Jeff. Right, we'll filter but, those out. Yes, um, but to answer your question, I think to serve the the demographic and the market we serve, you need not only data, you need um, workflow enabling things like how to do a quick analysis on something, how to do a comparative analysis, how to uh, do deep dive research, how to export things to Excel. So you do some very, very customized things and you need human support. And I think when you add together the three-legged stool of the right data, easy to use tools and great customer support, that's a pretty difficult stool to replicate. If it was just the data or just the tool part, I think a Google or an Amazon could jump in and, and make some money. Yeah, and from their standpoint, they're probably saying, well, we've, similar to what you said, we've already gone 80% of the way there where you can type in any stock symbol and get a mm -hmm. chart right mm -hmm. there on the screen. So yep. that's good enough for most of the population. Yeah, but listen, you know, we, 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 we certainly sit alongside them. If you go uh, pulled up a browser and put uh, Netflix EBITDA or Netflix market cap or things like that, I mean, you're going to see us very highly ranked on those things right up with this search engines. We think SEO is an important way for somebody looking for data to see what they're, to, to get what they're looking for. Sometimes they may just be looking for a Netflix EBITDA. They want to grab it. They want to move on. Sometimes what they're really saying is I really want to look at the video and, and broadband markets. And I want to do a complex analysis to that. We think that's a place we want to play. If you're just looking for a data element, you know, you're welcome. You can get to our site. You can get that information for free. You can move on with your day. If you're actually looking for a tool to help you with uh, complex analyses or, or to help you think through or communicate things, that's where we come in. Does Netflix even have an EBITDA yet? Is it, is it positive yet? <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it is with, uh, with all the content of, they need. A lot of content. Yeah. yeah. Yep. A lot of billions they spend on comp. Yeah, and for us, we, we love the comparison charts, um, benchmarking across things, right? I can pull up any number of, you know, usually it's 
we do a monthly asset class scoreboard, we call it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you use you guys just to pull up the different commodities, hedge funds, uh, S&P, world stocks, real estate, basically mm -hmm. via ETF as proxies. But mm -hmm. uh, ability to put all those on a chart, normalize mm -hmm. it, 5% uh, yep. return, underwater equity curves, all of it. Um, yeah. So what do you see? And it kind of feels to me like people who are Microsoft Excel-based workers are kind of more the target or they find it more useful because you have um, all those Excel tools in there. Well, um, we're not so arrogant as to think is that we've thought of every single scenario of how you'd like to, what you'd like to do with your day. And so we've got every single use case supported in our software. So because with that disclaimer that we're, we're only as smart as we are and that's not smart enough yet, we know we want to make it easy for our customers when they uh, they aren't able to get support for their use case within Y charts that they can do it in Excel. Yeah, yeah. So what we do with Excel and and it's it's a, a small portion of our customers that actually use Excel or see the need for Excel. What we do for Excel is our database is tied to it and we can help you create at no charge. We can help you create a sheet that achieves your objectives. And if your objectives is, hey, I wanna be able to do a side-by-side -side portfolio comparison where um, you know, my client has some fixed income securities that are not in the YCharts platform, so I know I need to go grab that from another system and plug it into a sheet along with what I can get standard from YCharts, we'll create that sheet for them and allow them to get their business objective done. And oh, by the way, since we're helping you create the sheet and we're in touch with you on it, it serves as a great source of input for us on what things we should put into our software. So we use it as our R&D uh, sandbox to help us see, wow, we're getting a common request to do things outside of our application. It's time to put that into our application. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm lagging there. I need to do that free call and say, hey, set me up so this automatically pulls into the Excel sheet. We're, we're still doing the export, paste it in then do our stuff when I know there's the functionality to automatically have it pulled in. Yeah, we've also got some really cool functionality. I don't know if, if you've, it, it meets your use cases. We've got some functionality called model portfolios. Yeah, yeah, we use a lot of those. Uh, we do some work with some different uh, mutual funds. And so advisors are saying, hey, what do these all look like uh, yeah. together? And we, we shoot out that report automatically to them every month. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, whether you're creating a sleeve that is a fang sleeve that you may use for multiple of your clients or you're creating your own version of a 60-40 or 70-30 or 80-20 portfolio or you just want to do some things like I do often, like Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports has made a bunch of picks, right? And, and, and he, over time, I create a model portfolio of Dave Portnoy's picks, nice. another model portfolio... Of, of Robin Hood, you know, Robin Hood's most popular. And then I'll show Warren Buffett's, you know, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway B class. And I will be able to, on a single chart, compare not 52 lines from uh, Dave Portnoy and, and 15 lines from uh, Robin Hood. I'll be able to aggregate Dave Portnoy's into one line and look at it like it's its own security. I can see its exposure to, to ETFs, stocks, and mutual funds. I can see its risk characteristics. I can see its geographic exposures. So I think that's neat functionality 
for so many different use cases that I'm glad to see that you're leveraging it. Let's uh, let's get the link to that Portnoy portfolio and we'll put it in the show notes because I'd right. love to see that. Is it is it as good as he makes it seem? Yeah, you know, I mean, um, it's an interesting period in this pandemic uh, where you know the day trader is is generally speaking you know, thriving right now and has been over the last 90 days, just a, a crazy 90 days. So yeah, his, his portfolio looks awfully nice. It's outperforming Robin's Hood's top day trader picks and significantly outperforming our, uh, the Oracle of Omaha. Yeah. He's been, uh, kind of the, the loser of this whole thing. So, um, you mentioned Robin Hood a few times. So I just wanted to talk about that. What are your thoughts on that, that poor kid that, that killed himself and just as a responsibility as a tech platform in the financial space. And it's a little different for you guys because you're not, you know, kind of enabling the trading. Mm -hmm. Maybe you are in an indirect way, just, you know, getting a little heavy here for a second, but what are your thoughts on just kind of the responsibility the company has to be, you know, responsibly offer up this data? Yeah. Boy, what a, what a tragic situation that, that is, and you know, it, the analog is you're you're a knife creator. Um, you know, yeah. what is your responsibility to what happens with that knife? I I think my biggest concern right now in trading and the retail trading is, despite whatever small balance, um, you know, some younger people are putting in their accounts, they can't possibly. Very few of them can really know what they're doing, and things are getting so gamified right now that it's hard to tell the difference between a TikTok video that, you know, my 12 year old daughter's creating and a trade on margin, you know, or a heavily leveraged position on a Robin hood account. And I obviously say that somewhat facetiously, but we're gamifying everything. And the gaming mentality is, well, if it doesn't go well, I turn off my PlayStation 2 or, and, and, and I go about my day. Uh, in the world of real money and real losses, that game's not funny. And so yeah. I believe yeah. as an industry, especially trading applications, we, we, guardrails have to be put up. And as much as you get people to sign things, did you read this disclaimer statement? You could lose money. Check here. That's not enough. We have to have some guardrails that say, I want to have you triple confirm that you understand that if, if the movement on this uh, call option that you put in place is in the following parameters, your loss could be up to this. I do think we ha there's, a, there's an obligation to say um, there is some responsibility for how your platform is being used. Now with us, I, I sleep very well at night by saying our whole value prop is to help you make better investment decisions. And we are not directly linked into any trading system by design. We want you to be thoughtful. We want you to do your research. We want you to think it through. And we probably want you to sleep on it before you execute on that trade or that rebalance. So we deliberately are saying, we want to help you make good decisions and we don't want to make it too quick and easy for you to press buy. Right. I think that's for the whole industry is like, how do you weigh that balance between gamification, user interface, super simple, get users in as quickly as possible. And do they really know what they're doing? Have you provided the necessary tools for them to learn what they're doing? Yeah. And free, free trade scares the hell out of me, to be honest with you. It's, it's wonderful if you're a professional, 
right? It, 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 it takes, uh, it, it makes it easy to rebalance a portfolio. It's so dangerous if you're dealing, if you're an individual investor and you're dealing with, um, you know, hype and momentum and, and, you know, fear of missing out as opposed to really doing your homework. And, and then yeah. there's, there's just no, there's no barrier to making 20 trades a day. FOMO, the kids call it these days. So. Mm-hmm. Switching back a little, when you were talking about these advisors and whatnot, like, do you think Y charts ascent and and uh, being in the spaces in would it have been possible fifteen years ago, twenty years ago? Ignoring the tech piece because a lot of that needed to be, but it seems to me as advisors moved out of wirehouses, as you were saying, they need these tools. And I think twenty years ago, they just they'd call the research department, they'd they'd have it in house to just build these kind of comparisons for them. Yeah, I I think. The market has changed. So the independent breakaway advisor space who's managing somewhere between 100 million and less than a billion in AUM, that, that's just really grown up. So the market's changed. But even when the market's there, I think it's been an interesting time where uh, it's, it's inexpensive to create an application. Data is largely commoditized. And the talent level around technology is superb. And I think when you take the market changing and all the factors to create a solution came out, that really, um, the advent of that has been in the last 10 to 12 years. And then um, is your guys, is it all in-house tech? Are you using different like off the shelf packages to build out some of the technology? So, um, like any development shop I've ever been part of, you know, we do, there are some superb code libraries out there that will help you do some basic and generic functions. We certainly leverage, uh, some of those, but otherwise it is, you know, I, I, I think there's a ton of value in having a singularly architected platform, um, with some constructs created for the future. And I haven't seen too many opportunities where that works by fully embedded, embedding somebody else's application into your own. So basic code libraries, but not any complex functionality. So you've been tweeting out some stuff, or I don't know if it's you personally, but the Y charts handle, been tweeting out some interesting graphs of uh, the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that data on the platform? And yeah, first, first of all, on my handle, uh, Sean underscore Y charts, it's all me. I, I get such joy when I think I'm checking out of work that I really start to use the platform to satisfy my own curiosities and my own creativity. So when, I, when I'm tweeting, you know, sometimes it's what's the impact of a Trump tweet on a public security. Sometimes it's taking a look at what happens after uh, a bankruptcy is declared typically and and how deep's the dip and what's the recovery or a corporate trauma like Boeing. I do a lot of those analyses myself. Um, But to answer your question about the coronavirus, it's all in our software. So we felt like our platform, stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, uh, SMAs are in our platform. We also have tens of thousands of economic indicators and other things, cryptocurrencies, um, coronavirus. We felt like there's a lot of our customers who are saying, I need to understand this pandemic and the details on world countries and states, uh, hospitalizations, deaths, um, 
you know, all of the key statistics. We, we felt it was really important with how uh, progress or lack of progress on getting through COVID and the health crisis that created and people returning to work. We obviously felt like that's a pretty important leading indicator for how the economy is going to do and how individual securities are going to do. Um, it, it's hard to believe that people are going to be jumping into casinos or cruise lines or hotels or rental cars until they feel safe. So we felt it was important to put COVID statistics within our platform to help inform advisors on the timing and the appropriateness of making investments in certain securities. Um, and we've, we have that same philosophy here for any a number of other economic uh, statistics, jobs reports, housing starts, uh, GDP of Sweden, et cetera. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of economic indicators because we think it ties closely to the research you should do to make good investment decisions. How does that, that comes from the top or from customer requests and then it goes through a team that says that we need to get this, this on the platform? Uh, fun thing about being a small company, we're, uh, we're about 65 people. Fun thing about being a small company is there's not a whole lot of, uh, there's not a whole lot of hemming and hawing before you do this. Um, we have a, an outstanding product management department and an outstanding engineering team. And they decided it was important enough to stay up all night for a couple nights um, right at the end of February, early March. And voila, they had it in our software and it's been incredibly valuable, but there was no fill out form 22B and run it by this committee. We just said it was important. Yeah. Let's go do it. What, what's the data source? Does that come into it too? Of like, hey, do we have, we're not going to put it up there until we're trusting of the data source? Yeah, that always weighs into it. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't get it right. Happened to be in this case, we got it right from day one. There's, uh, there's um, some great statistics from Johns Hopkins that are published daily and another one called the COVID tracking project, which have proven through time to be as accurate as, uh, you know, accurate's a tough word in today's day and age, but yeah. as accurate as a source as there is. And we're also pretty good at knowing um, to the event you ever don't get it right, make sure you have an architecture that allows you to swap out one data provider and swap in another. And so we've been very pleased with what we've seen so far. The uh, my favorite statistic during all this seems weird to say favorite because it's the excess deaths. Like to me, that filters out a lot of the noise on the on the other data, and you just see like, hey, normally in Chicago there's ten thousand deaths in a year, and there's sixteen thousand this year. Mm -hmm. So you know you, you can say the data is not accurate, and they're testing more, and like kind of removes all the different arguments of not trusting the data to me. Yeah, the, the, the thing we've been unable to normalize out in any way is we've basically uh, dismissed all statistics from China. Um, I'm not trying to be political here, but it's uh, the, the statistics just don't add up. So when you take points of comparison of percent of population or, or infection rates or hospitalization rates or death rates, uh, there's a huge anomaly when you look at data from the the epicenter of where all this stuff is purported to have started. So um, we, we, we do try to let people know that uh, our statistics are as accurate as the reporting entity. And uh, that one may not be as accurate as we would have hoped. What are your, what are your thoughts overall on China statistics, not just with the virus, but some of their company numbers seem a little iffy and, 
you know, you're just reporting what's getting reported, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it seems like a weekly basis, whether it's a, a U.S. publicly listed company. Um, I'm just blanking on the name of that coffee company. Uh, in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, there seems to be a, a, a trend line, which is all that glitters isn't gold on some of these emerging uh, countries don't have the regulatory oversight, may not have the ethical oversight that they need. And, um, you know, caveat emptor, if you're yeah. going to be buying things associated with those as a software company, um, I would love to see a real stepped up respect for intellectual property rights, because there's more than a few stories out there of uh, uh, software that ironically is extremely similar to software that was created in a more democratic market. And there aren't really good courts of appeals on these kind of things. Yeah. That's unfortunate. The, uh, and actually we did some interviews with some Chinese hedge fund managers a couple of weeks ago and they were saying, yes, there's that, but also look at the U S look at Enron and this wire card that just happened. And so it's like, it's not unique to the U S yes. Yes. We, we actors exist. Bad actors exist everywhere. Uh, and so a little more on this. So the the COVID stats would kind of be considered alternative data, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, what are your thoughts on, you know, hedge funds wanting satellite data and number of cars in the target parking lots and, and kind of going, is there a market there for you guys? Do we ever have that kind of granularity? So it, it's great. Oh, you know, so I follow millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I follow all this stuff and I think it's, it's, it's really great for your, if your target market is looking to get the first sign possible that a buy opportunity exists or a sell opportunity exists as far upstream towards those leading indicators, you know, what are executives body language? What do parking lots look like? Um, you know, how late are, are executives working at night? Um, all of those things are fascinating statistics they're not yet something that our target market is real interested in. Our target market, uh, again, as wealth advisors, asset managers, broker dealers, they're much more of a mindset of buy and hold and willing to acknowledge the fact that they may have gotten in one day too late or 15 days too early if you had a short-term time horizon. But with a long-term time horizon, they're saying that's a blip on the radar I'll let the hedge funds, prop shops um, worry about market timing and um, technical analysis a little bit more than us. We're looking at fundamental analysis and buy and hold mindsets. Yeah, to me, that's the next unicorn of some CME group, ICE group type firm that says, hey, we're going to put all this alternative data in one spot, you know, enable companies that come up with the data to better market it and sell it. Right? And you could have this huge marketplace of people buying and selling these alternative data streams. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you can get all the way to the facetious of um, how much ban roll-on are these executives uh, are these executives using and what's their sweat profile so I know whether they're telling the truth or lying in their yeah. earnings calls. And it, it's neat to see that evolve, not yet relevant to our, our typical target market. Yeah, the, uh, it's funny to me, right, because you came from low latency which is always a weird term to me because it basically means high frequency. Mm -hmm. Low latency seems slow to me if you're not in the business. Um, but it means, right, there's very low time difference between what you're mm -hmm. trying to do. 
but you've gone from that super low latency to like daily delayed data, right? Mm-hmm. I guess some of the stock data is real time on there, but uh, or near real time. Yeah, and and what it's what it's reminded me of is there's all kinds of different ways to invest to achieve your objective. There's short-term quick in, quick out, and there's methodologies to support that. And there are long-term buy and hold, and there are methodologies and approaches to do that. I personally am a believer that um, if you're doing things right, you should be blending them together. And much like when we go to buy a house as individuals, I think you start by saying, where is the crime rate the lowest? Where are the taxes the best? Where's the school system the best? Where is the weather the best? You know, you look at some key fundamental statistics on a home. But before you buy, you get more of a technical mindset. You start to look at comparables. You start to look at, um, you know, things that have happened in your market that would allow you, is it the right time for me to get in and buy that house I love in that town? I view investing in a similar way that I think it's neat when people combine fundamental and technical analysis and say, I know this is what I want to hold long-term the most, but what is the right entry point for me to make that acquisition? And I love when people merge those a bit. So you, like me, have no uh, standing to say that we have any technical analysis with home owning in the in Illinois, right? We would, yeah. be, we would be long gone in Texas or Tennessee or something if we considered all the facts of the pension debt, the taxes, and the, but that's mm-hmm. a discussion for another time. That's a, that's a whole separate podcast. We'll have to schedule that one. Yep. Exactly. So what are, what are some of the next goals and steps for Y charts in terms of what's the future look like for you guys? Um, An IPO potentially down the road? Are you going to stay private? I, you know what? We're, we're having so much fun right now just growing. You know, we're growing 30 to 40% a year and, and that's completely joyous. And that gives you plenty to think about, plenty to plan for. It gives you a lot to think about when you're thinking about next year. So I can't tell you where we'll be in five years, except I know we're going to have a ton more customers and hopefully they, they stay with us for 10 years each on average or as long as their career lasts. Um, we have some work to do everything from the basic evolution to uh, integrating better to creating better and better visuals. Um, you know, again, I go back to the, the thing we strive for, which is how do you make the complex easy and how do you make the easy quick? Um, there's a lot of complex things that continue to emerge. And uh, so we got plenty to solve there. And then once it's, it's easy, what are the steps we can take to make it even quicker for you to have an idea and tweet it out, you know, we, we created a, a direct integration to Twitter. Um, we'll be creating a direct integration to LinkedIn to say, hey, we know rather than you copy paste your, your, your nice visual into one of these platforms, how about we make it real easy and we, you're directly logging in. So we have, we have so much basic evolution plus um, new geographies, new asset classes. You know, you, you've talked about alts. Um, you know, whether we do fixed yeah, income. My, my request while I have you is to get a bunch of uh, hedge fund indices on the platform. I'll, I can set you up with HFR or Credit Suisse would be my first two choices, but uh, those would duly, be to have on there. Duly noted. And we'll, we'll take it under advisement and the thing, you know, we'll, we'll keep, keep aggregating the requests from our customers and, and figure out what's the right thing. And then I may take you up on your offer. Yeah. What, um, 
what any plans for like a kind of a network where these different users could be talking to each other, sharing portfolios, things of that nature outside of Twitter and LinkedIn, like in inside the platform? Yeah, a really, really great and timely question. Um, Typically in the wealth advisor space, the history had been wealth advisors had seen themselves as competitive with each other, right? Like I win an account, that means you lose an account. The, the reality is I think all wealth advisors have realized there's plenty of unserved market out there. It's not a zero sum game. So we've seen a growing appetite from advisors, especially to collaborate. So to your point, uh, don't be surprised on the horizon if, you know, we've already got, we profile uh, some of our best users, how they use our application, what their insights are. Don't be surprised if we uh, allow them to share their dashboard with others. Don't be surprised if we have forums to say, what do uh, the bulk of our users think about a 60-40 model portfolio centered around Vanguard funds? You know, hey, uh, don't be surprised if we have things that say the most commonly screened um, securities in the auto space end up being the following. So collaboration is going to be a big part of our future. Right now we're taking the collaboration themes mostly within an enterprise. How do we do a better job, Jeff, allowing you and your colleagues to share insights analyses with each other on different licenses where you're saying, here's something interesting I found today and it quickly emerges in your, your instance of our software. And it just popped in my head, like, it would be super interesting of kind of aggregated stats across the platform of, like, here was the top search stock symbol and index. And, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, I mentioned earlier the COVID statistics is quick and easy to get that in. The thing where we want to make sure we get right and we think through is privacy um, and, and all of those considerations because we will never be in the business of saying, hey, Here's what Jeff and his, his five colleagues did. We'll anonymize it and send it somewhere and make some money. That's just not going to be our business model. But to the degree our, our client base said. Um, Is that because you're in Chicago and not Silicon Valley? Because that seems to be the rest of their models, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I believe I want to have a business model that's as transparent as possible because so much of our business is about trust. And if you can't trust me and us, um, you know, you're not going to want to stick with us for a long, long time. So we want to be transparent. We want the ways we make money to be crystal clear. And the way we make money is one way. It's the subscription fees that you pay to us. So to the degree that we sort out collaboration and sharing and how that helps somebody do better homework, great. Right now we're collecting a huge repository of interesting charts, interesting visuals. And we're saying, hey, we created it or somebody created it. If it could benefit you, take it and have at it. Yeah, and I think that's a brilliant little piece of uh, guerrilla marketing kind of, of like powered by wide charts, right? So anytime a user's putting that out there and social and whatnot, people are seeing your name. Mm -hmm. uh, what? Are, let's talk a little bit on your thoughts on FinTech space in general, the FANG, Tesla, uh, what's the new electric truck maker that's gone, you know, worth two billion without ever making a truck? <laughs> <laughs> that's not quite fintech, but back to fintech, what do you see in the space? What's exciting to you outside of, you know, what you guys are doing exactly? Uh, I, I, the reason I'm in the fintech space is I think fintech is way behind in the way it uses technology to solve business problems. So what continues to be exciting for me in the space is 
Um, we're not there yet. We're, we're not where we need to be. Um, some specific things in, in like the wealth tech space that I'd point to is there still is not a good way to um, prospect, create a financial plan, um, create a portfolio, uh, effectively manage the portfolio, uh, rebalance the portfolio, and rinse, repeat. Right now, it's still a fragment of, uh, there's a lot of fragmented solutions out there that are disjointed. And, and when you say, hey, I also want a risk profile of my customer before I meet with a prospect and before I create a portfolio, there's just a lot of well-intentioned point solutions out there that I think there's a real opportunity to be aggregated into a more comprehensive solution. And it's typical of FinTech, which is, um, you know, due to regulatory overhang or just history, we're, we're not applying all the best technologies and all the best thinking yet to solve our customers' problems. And who do you, who do you think suffers from that disruption when it comes to, I mean, obviously the banks, the big wirehouse brokerages kind of, even though they seem to be suffering already from REAs pulling out and going independent? Yeah, it, 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 my answer almost is, is a generic one, which is whoever the incumbent is. You know, you're seeing that now with, with Robinhood. Um, how it's able to disrupt the, you know, the, the E-Trades and, and, and the Schwabs and the Fidelities and, and services like that. And you're seeing that with robo-advisors, how they have the ability to disrupt traditional wealth management. It's always the answer is the incumbent. And it's a rare example where, you know, where the incumbent is able to pivot to still be competitive. And I think we're seeing that prime example, you brought up the, the Tesla and the, the, the electric powered trucks and stuff. Hey, listen, Tesla's, yeah. I mean, I mean, Tesla's market cap, you know, is greater than Toyota's right now. And like all these, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So it's the incumbent that will pay the price. They're either going to have to buy the innovative small company or they're going to have a hard time keeping up because they've built up procedures and, and, and barriers that allow them not to be innovate, innovative anymore. It's, it's no different in our space. So how do you square, like if robovisors became super successful, it'd feel like your product would be less and less needed, right? Because they wouldn't need the human advisor. It'd just be people click, click, signing up, having their money managed. And the yeah. advisor wouldn't need to build stuff on your platform. So first of all, if, I mean, if we stayed static, dead on. Um, but let me paint a different scenario for you. If, ro- if robo-advisors were able to allow the 70% of America that is not currently served by yeah. professional asset management, if you said, hey, the target there, um, that engine still needs to understand the client, needs to come up with the right security, needs to notify them when there may be some challenges and issues. There is a whole lot of brains in our current software and the workflows we currently support that fit well into the fully digital world. I also am a firm believer that um, if I were to live another 75 years, in 75 years, there still are going to be humans helping other humans manage their wealth. Because at the end of the day, uh, we're all a little nervous of entrusting our, our nest egg and all of the wealth that we have worked so hard to create and all of our savings, I think we're all going to still be a little nervous to say, 
a machine's taking care of all of that and I don't have a human I can talk to to express my concerns or, or, or my desires. Yeah, my, my neighbor's a wealth advisor and he was basically saying that 10-day period in March, he was a full-time therapist, you know, on the phone for 12 hours a day from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. And most, of, most of the conversation was fairly simple. Like you said, therapist, what does a therapist do? They mostly just listen. Yeah. And um, they're playing the role of therapist and pilot, right? When the plane gets turbulent, you don't want your pilot to be silent. You want your pilot to get on and say, I'm aware, I'm in control, and here's when I'll be in touch with you next. So they're playing one part pilot, the other part therapist, just saying, how you feeling? Hey, we thought about this when we created your plan we're going to stay the course. This too shall pass. Boy, that's a much more comforting way to go to bed than checking your robo platform and going, it just went down 28% today, honey. We've got, we've got to sell everything because I think it's going to go down more tomorrow. Yeah. And I, I find interesting, right? It seems that hasn't been the runaway success robos that people thought uh, turns out it cost them way more money than they thought for customer acquisition, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the tune like they were losing money on some of the customers that they were yeah. I still think where it's going is a, a really nice uh, common ground where the typical advisor can support about 100 accounts. And with those current 100 accounts, it's very predictable that the fees to support those clients are going to need to drop there's going to be margin compression going from 1% of AUM down to three quarters of a percent or half percent. So um, you need to figure out a way to bring in more accounts. I think it's going to be a nice blend if you can use robo with some of your smaller AUM and bring on another 150 accounts in a robo world and wait to see which ones migrate into the more personalized service uh, handholding service that you provide to your top 100 customers. So I see it as a wonderful way for advisors to continue to grow their practice while without having to work 150 hours a week. Yeah. Well, my neighbor can attest to his, his 150 hours a week, a hundred of it's on the golf course. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, it's business. He's, get, he's yeah. getting clients. Oh yeah. Um, great. Well, I'm going to move on to our favorites. Unless you got any other last thoughts on the platform or, or the future. I think we've covered quite a bit. Yeah. Love to hear it. So yeah, every pod we ask you some of our, your favorites, some quick fire answers. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with uh, Joe Montana or John Elway. Joe Montana. Joe Montana. Joe Montana, without a doubt. All day. Uh, favorite Chicago pizza place. Lou Malnati's. Uh, it, 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 the Malnati family is in the town I currently live in, and uh, I've always enjoyed their pizza, although Pizzeria Uno is, uh, is a close second for me. The Lou is a good one. Um, and you, we forgot to ask for your Cubs or Sox fan, or neither? I, I've never heard of the Sox. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. We'll see. We'll see what this baseball season looks like. I feel mm. like the Cubs might have a chance. I feel like anyone has a chance in this shortened season. So yeah, we'll see. And right, everything's going to have, have like, an everything's going to have an asterisk by it when you've got four guys who had a 400 batting average after playing 60 games, and they've got the a different kind of asterisk than Barry Bonds has by his name. It'll be interesting. Right, but like Lester, if you got some of these older guys that don't have to do the whole season, it might be beneficial. That'll be exciting. Um. 
Usually we ask favorite investing books, so I'll offer that one up there, but also favorite kind of fintech or entrepreneur book, if you want to take that one instead. Um, entrepreneur book, I really liked, there was a book called um, uh, Hooked by Nur Yal, is his name. I really like that. And there's another one, another book called How to Make Your Customers uh, Badass. I just think those are some fantastic business books that hits on the theme of um, make your customer feel great, make them great at what they're trying to do and all other things will work out awesome for you. Yeah. We used to, my old company that I was head of would make every new employee read, uh, is it Tom Mitchell or some Mitchell uh, hug your customer who mm-hmm. ran the suit shop in, in Greenwich. So it was a little, it was some great messaging. I was yeah. also, well, you were also suiting up the, hedge fund guys that were willing to pay. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It was easy to hug them. Um, favorite function inside wide charts. Um, customer success. I, oh, I'm sorry. Are you talking application function or organization function? I was talking application, but I'll okay. take the, the earlier one. That sounded interesting. Sorry. I, um, if you're asking about my favorite roles within YCharts, it's the customer success team. I, I just love that they're the front and center for helping us make our customers successful. Um, but if, if you're in terms of application functionality, I love our model portfolios. Um, I just love how variable the use cases are and how I can use it to, to truly understand buying opportunities or I can use it to develop an insight on whether Dave Portnoy or Robin Hood or um, the Oracle at Omaha uh, are, are best over a two week, two month or two year horizon. I just love the functionality. That I'm going to make a blog post out of that. I love that idea of looking at those three uh, up against each other. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, favorite star Wars character. It's a painful one for me. Um, I, it's always been Chewbacca, but it, I say that um, in, in a very sad way. And I remember being in my grandmother's driveway in upstate New York and having my favorite Chewbacca figure that I buried in her driveway as part of a, uh, an adventure I was on. And then she called us in for dinner and went in for dinner and came back out and I couldn't find where I buried Chewbacca. So my, my long and short answer is it's Chewbacca and somewhere in Buffalo, New York is my favorite Buffalo, my, my favorite Chewbacca action figure is still in somebody's driveway. Well, when you write your next chapter, that's your first adventure that you're going to take with your <laughs> wife. We're going to save Chewbacca. We're, we're, we're digging up somebody's driveway because it was gravel back then, but it's surely paved now. So we're going to have an awkward conversation saying, can I dig this up and see what happens to plastic after uh, 45 years? Well, it'll be frozen in the Buffalo tundra. So, yeah, true. It may be it may be out there two thousand years from now. Some somebody's going to be with a pick and the axe digging there and find the city of Buffalo exists, and they're going to find an action figure and they're going to piece it together and say, "Wow, this yeah. must have been some mystical symbol." It was a <laughs> Chewbacca. Chewy, I love it. All right. Well, thanks, John. This has been fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to continue watching you guys grow and have success. Jeff, thank you for being a customer. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And I, I did want to uh, offer something up to your listeners too, if that's sure. okay. Yeah. So uh, listen, we, we love to get in discussions with, with new people and um, welcome to take a two-week free trial. But I also did want to offer a 15% discount to anybody who references your podcast 
um, before the end of August. So please, you know, mention the, uh, mention this podcast and I would love to get to know you. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, well, thanks so much. Good luck. Have a happy 4th of July. Forgot to mention that's why I'm wearing these big, broad red stripes. But uh, You too. Go, go America. Uh, have fun this weekend, but uh, stand far apart. Stand far apart and don't hold the fireworks too close to your hands. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Take care, Jeff. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at RCMAlts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.